Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Who gets listened to, right? Whose story is believed um, and whose isn't? Who has power? And, and who was left out of power. Who are we afraid of and are, are our fears in the right place or are they misplaced? Who gets what kind of treatment from the justice system? I think that crime stories have a lot to tell us about all of these things. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's the most popular genre for book lovers, podcasters and even documentary makers with a growing audience who love all things true crime. But what is it that intrigues us about violence, fear and gruesome death? And why are women the biggest consumers of all when it comes to murder and mayhem? This week, I'm talking to writer Rachel Munro, whose book Savage Appetites explores our fascination with true crime told through four stories of obsession. She tells me how forensic science, justice and victims are centre stage in the growth of a true crime industry. We talk internet sleuths, Columbine copycats and even eerie dollhouses as we consider if voyeurism or empathy lie at the heart of the true crime junkie era. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So, Rachel, I have to say, as a crime journalist, um, I seem to be always on the defensive. I don't know any other type of journalist that is constantly asked to, you know, you know, in every interview I would do or whatever, I'm just asked why I do what I do and what's the relevance of my subject. It's like as if I constantly have to defend it. I don't see that, you know, political journalist or sports journalist or anybody else having to do it. Um, and also because I'm a woman, I think I'm also asked to defend why women are so interested in crime as if we should be uh, a different species that has, you know, should look away. But 
over here is the same as the States. We have podcasts like this one. We have books. We have documentaries. We have crime channels. We have cold case investigations. And crime, the commercialization of it is just really hitting a new level. Um, in actual fact, the first crime con is due to happen in London in the coming months, but we can come back to that because that was a, a really uh, interesting start to your book. But we'll start with you, first of all, and your own obsession with crime. It seems to have been born through childhood and throughout your adolescence, but in particular on your discovery of the Columbines being a thing. So maybe you could explain to us what that's about. Yeah, it's it's interesting the what you say about uh, having to defend yourself because I think when I was first uh, drawn to these crime stories when I was younger, it felt very much like something that was taboo. It was before this current crime boom where now you know you have people getting together and like wine and crime meetups and but at the time uh, that felt that felt kind of impossible to imagine. And it felt this like this secret that I had to keep uh, from people that I had this real fascination with these really uh, dark stories. Um, even though at the same time, it, as long as there's been media, there's been media about crime and these stories of, of taboo and of violence and of sort of the edges of human behavior and human psychology have, have always fascinated, fascinated us. And I, it is always funny to hear people act as though um, there's something remarkable about women being interested when you're sort of like, well, my one of my responses is always like, well, well, humans are interested in this and it, and it turns out that women are humans too. So maybe it shouldn't really be shocking. Um, but yeah, my first, and I think for a long time, it felt like something that I would, uh, these stories were things that I would keep myself up at night. Um, it was a kind of, it was a distraction, but it, they were particularly appealing to me when I was maybe having a hard time in my life because there was some, something about the, the chaos and the violence and the, um, just the darkness of them would suit my mood. But then when I first started engaging as a, as a writer and as a journalist was with this phenomenon of the Columbiners who I discovered, gosh, it's almost a decade ago now, which is... Um, these mostly at the time it was particularly almost entirely young women, um, and teenagers, some of them very young, on Tumblr, um, creating a sort of fandom culture around the Columbine killers, who were the the two high school boys who uh, murdered many of their classmates and, and a couple teachers, or one teacher, um, in uh, 1999 in the U.S. Um, who for for most of the country, you know, there are these figures of great fear and horror, but for these girls, they were treating them like they were, you know, Justin Bieber or something. Like they were um, these cute misunderstood boys who um, just, you know, needed to be loved. And were these girls from all over the States or were they particularly from the area where this awful atrocity happened? They were all over. And I think in some ways, and many of them hadn't even necessarily been born when these murders happened in 1999. And I think that's, or they were very young. So I think that's a really important aspect of it. Like it's hard to romanticize something like this um, when you've been in any proximity to it. Um, I'm sure you find this as a crime journalist, you know, there's a certain proportion of the population that maybe finds a certain mystique in murderers. But if you've ever covered a murder trial or actually like spoken to anybody, it's uh, there's no glamor there at all. So I, I think that um, Columbine became such a, 
media and pop culture sensation that for a lot of these girls, it almost felt fictional um, because it was this cultural touchstone. It was easier for them to um, romanticize these boys and treat them as characters. And also, I think you can trace a lot of this fandom back to uh, an American TV show, American Horror Story, I believe it was, that was on at the time that had a Columbine inspired storyline with like a very cute boy playing the school shooter. So again, it's not just, it's not just these girls with their, you know, aberrant taboo sexuality. They're responding to these things that are happening in mainstream pop culture. You know, this is like a primetime TV show that's getting a ton of people investing in it. Um, that's, that's sort of spreading the word that, that um, this is a heartthrob. And, and of course, the, these girls are, are responding to it. And Dylan Claybold's diary, of course, was printed online. So they were able to, or they certainly felt they were really able to connect with this kind of almost celebrity-like um, like guy. And uh, that online thing is something that while, okay, the internet has been around for more than 20 years now, it's still new, isn't it, in our culture? Definitely. And I think it was, you know, Columbine was one of the first crimes, I think you could say, where the perpetrators had this online uh, life that could be um, tracked and looked at. Um, they were they were pretty early. These boys were pretty early to film themselves, to have a website. And so and um, it was so shocking at the time that the uh, families pushed for the sheriff's office investigating to release a lot of this information. So they think everybody wanted to know why. Right. Um, but the, there was sort of an unexpected um, result uh, consequence of them releasing all of this information was that it, it um, provided all this material for these, these people who uh, these young girls in some cases who consider themselves fans or researchers um, just a lot to like obsess over. And I think, you know, there's something compelling. I can imagine being a 15-year-old girl, like reading a 17-year-old boy's diary, right? We don't really get that that opportunity. So um, I think that, that that's certainly part of the appeal for some of these girls is, is getting to peek inside these boys' um, inner lives. And, and it was also early enough in the trend of mass shooters that we have here in the U.S., tragically, um, that I think the media maybe made some mistakes in covering it that, that have, uh, we've learned about since. Um, there just was a ton of focus on who these boys were, what music did they listen to, what clothes were they wearing, what weapons did they have. Um, and I think that was all well-intentioned and it was in service of trying to figure out, you know, why did this happen? How could this happen? But um, it did it did end up meaning that they were treated, the killers were essentially treated as, as a form of celebrity, even if it was a negative celebrity. And I think um, the fact that we know their names, you know, that's, uh, that's something that happens much less in the media now um, that we're saying killers' names over and over and over again. Um, I think that's one way we're sort of trying to turn away from this, turning killers into celebrities. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you two things about that. Firstly, where were the victims and why weren't they coming through in, in the, not the celebrity of it, but why weren't they connecting with teenage girls all over the country, our boys, as you know, where were their families? Where were those stories that as journalists, we, you know, they mean more, don't they? And, and that's really what we should be bringing to, to people, both the stories of victims and probably 
the backstories of these killers, what happened to make them killers. Mm -hmm. Because they certainly weren't just, they didn't just wake up one day and become that. Um, And secondly, I wanted to ask you, when you discovered that these teenage um, Columbiners, as you call them, existed, were you shocked because it was so different and opposite to what you, as somebody who is essentially a crime fan growing up, um, it would have been probably the last thing you would have considered was trying to connect with the killer. Well, to answer your first question, there is a, there is, um, a certain amount of fandom, which again, it sort of feels like a strange word to use in this context, but I think it's accurate, um, around at least some of the victims. There was, there's a story of a young woman who was, the story was later proven to be false, according to a lot of reporting, but that, uh, but when one of the killers, um, pointed his gun at her, asked her if she believed in God. She said yes, and he killed her. It turns out that that didn't really happen. But um, again, that's a story that still travels all over the internet, I think, because um, just in the way that it can be tempting to um, oversimplify killers into you know evil from the very day they were born, it can be very simplifying, easy or attractive in a weird way to to flatten and oversimplify victims um, and to to reduce their life into sort of this this um, heroic narrative. So it's a story that gives us a lesson in in really the responsibilities we have as crime journalists and that we just just don't sort of uh, blast in with uh, facts that we also have to kind of tell a story, create a narrative around things and, and be aware that um, you know, of those responsibilities at all times. Um, the story you followed about the the fan, the, the Columbine fan, just, just tell me about that because that is just so different to anything we would kind of news stories or anything that we'd hear on this side of the Atlantic. Sure. So uh, I, when I first found the Columbiners, there was a part of me, of course, that, um, as you indicate, was was pretty shocked and horrified. But then at the same time, I, I thought back to when I was a teenager and um, all the things that I was interested in and all my messed up understandings of the world. And there was a part of me that thought, you know, I things if I had been a little, if I had been young enough to be around when this was on the internet, um, if I had been maybe a little bit more troubled, perhaps this is something that could have appealed to me. You know, I, I could in a way, see myself in them. I think these girls were trying to, in many cases, say something about their own, their own depression, their own experience with bullying, um, their own anxiety, their own feelings of alienation. And maybe they couldn't quite say it about their own experience, but they were using um, these boys as sort of a way to talk about these things that they couldn't admit about themselves. So I, I had, even, even among my... Um, disgust or shock at what they were saying. I, I felt some sympathy. It's, it's hard to be a 14 year old girl. Uh, and I'm glad that everything that I thought, you know, I didn't publish on the internet when I was that age. Um, but then, as you say, I, I, a number of years later, I came across uh, this case of a, a young man and a young woman who, who met through, on, through this fandom, through this Columbiner world, who planned a real mass shooting um, and that really brought me up short because I think it made me, a, a lot of us have uh, been in this place recently where it's not so easy to think about what happens on the internet as, oh, that's that's just the internet that's happening in a separate world. Um, I think we're becoming 
increasingly aware that um, the stances that are taken online and that and hateful online rhetoric um, isn't just online, it spills out into the real world um, with alarming regularity. And that's, that's sort of what happened here. These, these uh, two young people, they never met in real life. He lived in Canada, she lived in the United States. Um, they never ended up meeting in person, but they um, planned, they first sort of started flirting with each other online. And then over the course of several weeks, uh, six or seven weeks, um, this escalated into them fantasizing first jokingly about, oh, you know, we should, we should call a Columbine. And then it, it increasingly became um, a real plan. And, and she bought a plane ticket to Canada, which is, which is where they planned to go to the mall on Valentine's Day and, and kill as many people as they could. And she, I think you wrote, wanted to wear high heel shoes for the for that occasion, but was arrested when she landed. Yeah, it's an interesting case and it still puzzles me. Um, would they have actually done it? How much of this was fantasy? How much of it was reality? Maybe they themselves wouldn't have known until the moment. Um, and, and at that point, it's too late. But yeah, for her, it was very much a... She was, she was so much more concerned about her look, about her aesthetic, about what would be said about her online afterwards. It, for her, it was also a way of, it seemed to be a way of, of getting fame or attention or recognition, you know? She's like, she was obsessed with these, the Columbine killers. Um, if she did this, then people would be obsessed with her. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here, but is there a sense that that, school shootings are becoming normalized in the States and that this next generation coming up aren't as utterly horrified, um, you know, as, as the previous. I think they are. I think they are pretty horrified and they're, and they're very traumatized from the kids that I know that the drills that they have to do, you know, school shooter drills, just like kids in the fifties had to do, you know, atomic bomb drills. I think that's um, been shown to be traumatizing for kids, even if a shooting never happens, they're all very aware that it that it could happen at any moment. And and certainly, um, gun violence is so prevalent in the United States, um, and that is normalized. But at the same time, it still is terrifying. So it's we we exist in this uh, strange dual world of um, yeah. Guns are normal, but still everybody is is constantly afraid of a mass shooting. And I mean, it's in this case, it's interesting to me that um, if if these two kids had ended up planning that or going through with this shooting that they had planned um, because it was in Canada, they had very little access to firearms, very little access to ammunition. So um, if if it had happened, it would have been much the implications would have been like the casualties would have been much fewer you imagine than if it had been in the US when um, they could have just gone out and bought, you know, semi-automatic weapon and as many bullets as they wanted. And now this story was part of four essays that bring together your book, uh, Savage Appetites, which was brought out on this side of the, the world last year, but which is and will remain a very relevant book. It's not, it's not timely uh, for any particular reason. Um, what grabbed me in it was uh, in your intro, you, in your introduction, you're talking about being at a crime con uh, convention in, in the States. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction on this, uh, there's one of these happening in London and I'm sort of drawn to it in many ways and slightly uh, 
a bit, little bit horrified by the whole idea of it, the total commercialization of crime and of, you know, all that that is. It just seems like this is happening very, very quickly here now that this is this is happening. And we'll just see how it goes. But um, just tell us what it is, because it is pretty alien uh, to us. It's It was alien to me, I will say, being there. Um, and I had the same response. I was both drawn to it and, and a little bit repelled by it at the same time. Um, it is a fan convention, essentially. Like, you, you know, you have these fan conventions for, I don't know, Star Trek or what comics, Comic-Con, um, but it's for fans of true crime. And so it's, it obviously is a very different uh, tenor when, when instead of being a fan of, you know, a, a cartoon or a superhero TV show, you're a fan of like a murder. I mean, we think of that podcast, that very popular podcast, My Favorite Murder, just um, the idea that uh, you would be um, thinking of these acts of often like very brutal violence um in terms of fandom or enthusiasm um so in that way i think um some of what's disturbing about it is is right there on the surface um but what i found was was more complicated um you know you had uh many many podcasters hosts of uh these very popular true crime tv shows um people who had you know websites many people who write true crime books. Um, and it really ranged the gamut from people who were um, bringing attention to cold cases that had never really found an audience before. Um, sometimes, you know, cases that were decades old um, that were finally uh, being picked up and, and getting attention, you know, not, not because of uh, police, you know, often like the podcasters inspired the police to take action rather than the other way around. Um, you had people really uh, asking questions about the criminal justice system and and, um, and uh, false accusations and uh, wrongful convictions, um, things like that. At the same time, you had people who, I mean, it's, there were some attendees at this conference who really seem to be treating it like a bachelorette party, you know, like drinking a lot of champagne, getting like your mug shot taken. There was like a sort of an area where uh, you could like pose in a chalk outline of a body, you know, and take a selfie like that. Um, so it really was, you had both a very sincere and I think like uh, justice minded um, aspects of this convention at the same time you had the total commercialization and kind of voyeurism honestly um, and verging in some cases on, on disrespect I think that's and of course um, by and large you noted that a lot of the attendees or most of the attendees essentially were women mostly women and overwhelmingly white women too which I think is really notable um, because uh, the statistics I know are, are the statistics in the States, but, um, you know, most, most murder victims are not women or not white women. Certainly, uh, in the U S most murderers are also obviously not, not women. So, um, but the consumers of crime content are overwhelmingly women. And, and, and as far as we can tell, predominantly white women. Um, and so that, that leads to, uh, interesting, um, 
I guess the cases that tend to be popular and get that uh, if, if we're if we're thinking about this as like a commercial um, industry, essentially, uh, who becomes which stories become popular, um, what gets held up and what gets forgotten um, is really determined in, in many cases by what the audience wants and what the audience wants in a lot of these cases is stories um, about women. And so in some cases that leads to issues about crimes against women and violence against women being talked about in ways that it's never really been talked about before in a mainstream way, which I think is great. But then at the same time, a lot of victims get left out of that narrative. I suppose it gets to the nuts and bolts of this conversation really though, which is, um, you know, why are women there? Are they, are they trying to sense what it could be like to, to be that vulnerable, that moment that, that you become a victim? Do they want that, but they want to just observe it and be able to walk away for the evening and drink wine with their friends, but they still want to sense that element of that fear, that overwhelming mm-hmm. fear. Um, I agree with you on the situation when you're talking about we don't have the same racial kind of um, thing going on here, but certainly there's way more emphasis put on when there's the murder of a middle-class um, woman, when, when that is the central victim. And, and even when there's trials, they would be the trials that what I would sort of use another crass term maybe, but they're the ones that have the X factor. Mm. They're the ones that everybody wants to hear everything about. And you just, when the, those trials get going, every page of every newspaper is filled with all the details of it. And yet I see crimes happening all the time. And to me, the same human beings, the same way they were murdered and nobody's interested. Nobody wants to know. Yeah, I think that some of the very interesting research I did uh, in working on the book was about the issue of empathy. And and that's something that you'll hear a lot of people say um, when I was asking people at CrimeCon or other people um, in the course of writing the book, you know, why are you fascinated by crime? And empathy is something that that women bring up a lot. And I think um, feeling empathy for victims, wanting to sort of um, imagine feeling empathy for themselves too often. I think you have uh, women thinking about forms of victimization or exploitation that happened in their own life, forms of violence that um, didn't race to the level of murder, but maybe did make them still feel afraid or anxious or um, victimized in some way. And so reading these stories, I think, can sometimes help uh, women wrap their head around what happened to them. Seeing something in an extreme form helps you see um, the more subtle versions of it in your own life. But at the same time, um, I think we think of empathy as this um, thoroughly positive force in the world. And, and obviously, it, it is a good thing to cultivate these, you know, feelings for others. But um, I was really struck by the research that shows that empathy is, um, we don't extend empathy equally to everyone. And we're much more likely to empathize with people who remind us of ourselves, right? Um, and so I think we see this in in the true crime world and that when the true crime world has, has an effect on criminal justice policies, you know, we can't deny it. I think people dismiss it as just being trashy entertainment, but it really, I I think it really, that's discounting the important ways that it 
shapes our understanding of, you know, who's vulnerable, who's dangerous, how do we protect people? Um, and so I do think that there is a real tendency to uh, pay more attention to victims who remind us of ourselves um, and to extend empathy to them. And so I, I think, um, to me, that's a real failure, I guess, of the true crime world is to only, um, is to have those feelings of, of care um, and the desire to sort of change the, change, change the world, make things better, but only doing it for people who remind us, you know, I'm a white woman, remind us of, of people like ourselves. Um, that's where it can, it can sort of feel like it comes up short. And it gives, you know, people who are interested in true crime a slightly skewed version of the world of, you know, of what actually happens. Because, um, you know, the likelihood of a stranger jumping from a bush and murdering you or the likelihood of you meeting a serial killer at any point in your life is just so far down the scale when it comes to maybe, for example, you know, knife crime or the idea that you'd become a, a victim of a, a, you know, a burglary that could go wrong or whatever. Now, hopefully most people will never experience any of those things. But I think um, in the UK in recent months, there was a, a a murder that really hit home with a lot of women um, across Europe. Here as well, a girl, Sarah Everard, was killed on her way home. Now, there is a man, Wayne Cousins, charged with her murder, a police officer. Um, but... Her death in that manner as she walked home um, was, you know, it resulted in, in, in marches and there was, you know, a huge amount of column inches dedicated to it. And people seemed to really connect with that. Um, and they were being very open and honest about it. Women were saying, oh, I, you know, it's, it's an experience, I suppose, that we've all had. We've all walked home. We've all felt a little bit nervous. Um, at night or on the street or whatever, but it, we were connecting with ourselves, maybe, were we? Yeah, I think so. I think that's like a such a perfect example of the way that these stories are ways that we use them to talk about our our own fears or our own experiences. Um, they they take something that might feel personal and hard to talk about and turn it into something larger than life that, that then is, you know, in being larger than life, it's somehow, it's more visible. It's um, easier to point to, it's easier to acknowledge. And so um, I think that's why certain stories seem to catch on, I guess, in a way they, they're pointing to a larger feeling of a larger a sense that there's like a larger problem out there in the world that they are sort of symbolic of. But, you know, again, it's like, as you were saying, it's, it's also important to keep in mind that um, for most women, the danger is not, uh, is not necessarily the stranger. It's, it's often like inside your own home. Right. And so in some cases, I think that the fascination, particularly with serial killers who are so like vanishingly rare, um, and who tend to prey on uh, people who are really marginalized in society, you know, like they tend to prey on uh, people who are homeless, um, people who are struggling with addiction, sex workers, um, the idea that a, that a serial killer is gonna, you know, crawl in my window here and, and kill me is, is vanishingly rare, but in some ways it's easier or maybe 
it's, it's easier to think about that as scary as it is than thinking about somebody who, who I love, who is, you know, my partner hurting me. I think the nearest we've come to somebody like that um, and a rarity here in Ireland was some years ago, an architect was caught and he had uh, a body had been found in, in, in the mountains, a, a girl he'd actually, he had, he had killed. He was charged with murder and it emerged that he was into this sadomasochism and it was all pretty awful. He had actually made connections with a, a young girl in the States who had men- mental health problems and he was planning to travel over and to, to kill her. Um, but actually, you know, I covered the court case, so courts aren't very scary places. If you ask me, you're surrounded by officers of the court and guards and prison officers and the scary guy is in handcuffs anyway, usually or standing in the dock. He's not going to get at you. But um, everybody was asking me, oh, God, was he really scary? Was he? Oh, my God, was he really creepy? He was creepy. But to me, he wasn't a bit mm. scary. In actual fact, I, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've never met any criminal less scary than Graham Dwyer. Mm. Um, I just, you know, I could, I mean, he picked on the most vulnerable of the vulnerable and he certainly wouldn't have been somebody, I'd hope anyway, that would be a threat to me. And yet other people that, you know, aren't seen as that would be way, would be way more frightening to me. They'd be way more, um, I don't know, just maybe it threatened to me and maybe that's it. it. People that are threatening to us ourselves. Again, we're going back to the empathy only exists for when we can identify with the with the victims i'm actually coming to some sort of an understanding myself during this conversation for the next time i'm asked any of these questions i'll be able to sound a bit brighter than i have in the past which wouldn't be hard um just to go back briefly to your your book and you have your four stories are all independently and equally interesting but um and a, a, a woman for me um, who, I suppose, shows us that women have always been interested in crime. This is not a new phenomenon. Um, we are just really talking about it now. Is Frances Lesnar Lee. I hadn't heard of her, but are those little doll houses still, are they on view somewhere? Just tell us a little bit about them. They're they're not on view. I think there's some. Um, so to explain Frances Glessner Lee, she was a woman who was born in the 19th century, who was born into a very wealthy family in Chicago. It had many advantages, but also her her family didn't particularly believe that that women should be educated past a certain point. And and she had a brilliant mind, but but was really stifled in that way. Um, so a really interesting um, contrast there. She had many privileges, but also um, was really limited in, in what sort of life she was supposed to lead. And uh, in in later midlife, I think she was in her 50s, she started making, she became fascinated with forensic science, which at that point was um, a very new discipline. And this is, you know, the, the application of science and, and medical knowledge to figure out how a person died. Um, and And this was really a new field and, and still is, you know, we've had a lot of forensic science scandals in the United States. And so you, you realize this is still a very, very fresh science. Um, but at her time, it was very cutting edge. And she was sort of able to use her, her money and her influence to um, educate herself a lot about it. And then what she chose to do with that education was to make these incredible um, 
dollhouses, she would get really mad if I called them dollhouses because she thought of them as, you know, educational tools. But, you know, honestly, they're like small houses with dolls in them. So I think it's okay to call them dollhouses. But the thing that set uh, these dolls apart was that in each of the little dioramas, um, the doll was, was dead in some way. Um, and they, they were based on crime scenes that she had either heard about in her research or through her conversations with police officers and medical examiners, or some of them, you know, she would go on ride alongs with police officers to actually visit crime scenes. So some of them she, she might've witnessed firsthand. Um, and they were intended to be used. Um, I mean, they're, they're little puzzles in a way they're intended to be used as, as uh, training tools for police officers um, they're very precise in the way that a, like a very fancy dollhouse is. Uh, the, the little, the books have tiny pages, and the calendar has all the months are in there. And um, one of them apparently has a has a mouse trap that really snaps. Um, but the details are all there, kind of for a reason. And if you look at the scene long enough, you can um, you can figure out. Uh, and you could kind of prove that if the doll died, if the death that you're looking at, was it accidental? Was it suicide? Was it murder? Uh, was it natural causes? Um, through the evidence in the room. And often they are, you know, maybe it'll, uh, a cursory glance will point in one direction. Um, like, oh, this, this is a, a woman passed out in a bathtub in a, in a poor rooming house. Oh, she was probably a drug addict and, and she passed out and dried and drowned. Um, but if you actually look more closely, you'll find out that things aren't necessarily what they seem. And, and this was part of her mission in um, training police officers to not necessarily rely on their, their stereotypes or their biases or their, their initial uh, reaction to a scene, but instead have, have that kind of more um, rational, scientific, um, objective uh, view of the scene and to really investigate um, scientifically. To have a questioning mind. Um, you, you kind of, that was, that was at that time. And then we have around the time of the, the Sharon Tate murders, we have kind of after that, the, the sort of the growth of the victims movement, that victims all of a sudden start becoming important. And her mother, I think it is, is it, that campaigned for the victim impact statement, which is, we often still hear people in courts are allowed that moment when they can uh, explain exactly what a crime, how it has affected them, how the loss of a loved one or whatever has affected them so deeply. And uh, it's something very interesting. But, you know, as we've moved on, I think we have this absolute army of internet sleuths nowadays of people who are interested in, in crime and who keep us all in business now, in fairness, we'll have to point that out as well. But um, it seems to me that that whole, is the victim missing again? Or is there, is there, is, are we, are we becoming too fascinated with the nuts and bolts of the crime, with the, the, the forensics and, and that kind of thing? And are we losing touch with the victim again? That's an interesting question. I think, um, you know, I think some, in some cases, um, the focus, some, some people are doing this really well, right? And they're um, centering the victim um, and, and just acknowledging the real, that each of these stories is a tragedy, right? The, the, the reason that we're learning about this or, you know, whether it's a cold case or a wrongful conviction that there's um, some 
very deep pain at the heart of the story that, um, that cannot be forgotten. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned the online detectives because I think, um, yeah, in some cases you can see uh, this real fascination with, with particularly in cold cases or, or places or cases where it seems like perhaps the wrong person is in prison for a crime, um, this fascination with figuring out who really did it. And um, often that can be in sort of picking people's parts, uh, picking people's lives apart um, and, you know, who, who in this person's circle seems like they could have been a victim um, or obsessing over, you know, little details in the crime scene. Again, it's, it's um, treating these crimes almost as like a, as a puzzle to be solved or like a plot, you know, a mystery novel. And you want to, you want to figure out what the ending is um, to get that. I think that's, you know, a classic appeal of, of, um, fictional crime stories right is that you get you get an answer at the end so you have um this this feeling of oh no the world is coming apart you know something terrifying happened the social order is breaking down and then and then at the end you know you get the answer it's it's tied up neatly um and and you can feel like okay things 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 were bad but now they're okay again and there's a real desire i think um to feel that playing out in real life you know to get to get to get that neat bow um on, on real life cases, which are um, unfortunately much more complicated uh, than than what happens in a you know thirty minute TV episode, certainly. Um, but you know, sometimes I also wonder about the the emphasis on the victim, um, bringing the victim at the center of the story. Sometimes I question that impulse too, because I wonder because uh, that can so quickly lead to. Um, putting a spotlight on the victim can lead to, you know, what did this person do that caught, you know, that caused them to become a victim um, that, that sort of victim blaming tendency um, picking apart their lives, which uh, is really not helpful, right? Like they didn't, you know, uh, not useful. And so in, in some senses, I'm not sure that um, putting the victim at the center of the story, it also makes, um, the violence that happened to them, sort of the central fact of their life, you know, um, and and it really shouldn't be. Mm. And often that's not how their families choose for them to be remembered either. Um, so it sounds to me, and I'll give you the final word on this, Rachel, but um, people who are involved in this commercialization of crime, people like myself who work in that business, crime reporter, have a podcast, etc. Um, we have a big responsibility to think hard, long and hard about how we do tell a story and, and that, you know, while not making something entertainment that we have actually, we've actually ma- made some sort of, and maybe not, you don't make a difference that often in life, I don't think, but that you can maybe just teach something that doesn't necessarily come out with the, with, with the, the, the large commercialization of this. Yeah. I think that, I think that's really true. I think that it is um, for so long, these crime stories have been treated as if um, they are, they're just sort of a a pulpy um, non-serious frivolous voyeuristic um, kind of story to be interested in. And um, I think that's, that's missing the point that's missing how much, um, how important these stories can be, uh, how, 
how many people pay attention to them and how they really do shape our understanding of the world. Um, and, and those stories can be told in a way that encourages voyeurism, that forgets the pain at the center of the story, that plays into um, racist or misogynist or, you know, other um, problematic storylines about, you know, who is scary, who is bad, who deserves protection, how we need, you know, how law enforcement should function, or they can um, serve a very different role, right? They can um, tell us a lot about vulnerability in society, who is vulnerable, who gets listened to, right? Whose story is believed um, and whose isn't, who has power, um, and, and who is left out of power? Um, who are we afraid of? And are, are, we af are our fears you know, in the right place or are they misplaced? Um, who, is, who, who gets what kind of treatment from the justice system? Um, I think that crime stories have a lot to tell us about all of these things. And if they are told um, with a rigorous attention to those questions, they can be incredibly revealing, you know, about human psychology, about politics, about society. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, we do ourselves all a disservice. We, I think we just, you know, as, as creators of this stuff and, and I, you know, I'm a consumer of it too. I, I just want it to be better. On that note, Rachel, I'm going to go off and have a good talking to myself. So as I, I, I can uh, start thinking about these things before I put pen to paper the next time. Rachel Munro, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.